Good morning, church. Well, you did it. You made it, even though it was way earlier. Now, real quick, if somebody walks in because they're an hour late and they didn't reset their clocks, somebody walks in, don't laugh or point or scoff too much. Okay, we'll know it'll be our secret, okay, if they walk in late, and we'll, we'll give ourselves a little signal. The title of my sermon today is The Christian Witness, The Christian Witness. Witness is one of those words that can sound pretty daunting to many Christians. It may conjure different images for us, right? For some of us, we think of standing on the side of a street holding a sign saying, repent or perish. Some think of public speaking and all the nerves and anxiety that go along with that. Some think of the hard question and conversation they've been putting off with a loved one about Jesus. If we're asked if we do a good job being a witness for Christ, most of us in this room would probably say we could do better, that we don't really live up to the standard. The last three weeks, we've carefully walked through the Beatitudes, and I pray that that was a blessing for you and your, and your Christian walk. Um, we've called those the norms of the kingdom. You recall that? The norms of the kingdom were the Beatitudes, or Jesus's kingdom manifesto. Now this week we arrive in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, going through 16, which is connected to the Beatitudes. The thought continues on. Jesus doesn't take a break here. He moves right into these verses. And these verses have two metaphors, salt and light. And ultimately, these are metaphors for the Christian witness. So if you, like me, have struggled with the idea of Christian witness and witnessing before, then you've come to the right place. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's look at what Jesus has to say about it. Yes? Let's stand now and read God's word together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we want to know your word better. So we come together now and we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight by your spirit into your word. We ask that we would mold our lives to it by the power of your spirit. That we would test our life and our experiences against your word and line our lives up with your word. These are all things we ask of you now. We pray that you would do these for us. Pray that we would have attentive ears and a willingness to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In these verses, Jesus continues his preaching on the hillside, his teaching on the hillside, or what we've commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes seem to be generally addressed to all potential disciples and Christians as norms for the kingdom. We've said that they are the norms for the kingdom. Do I need to say it again? What are they? The norms, right? But in verse 11, Jesus turns his attention directly to the disciples sitting around him. Okay, and he's still doing this in verses 13 through 16. If the Beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom, then the Christian witness, in short, are those norms lived out in public. Let me say that again. If the Beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom, and they are, then the Christian witness are those norms lived out in public. Jesus wants us to know that it's impossible for us to follow the norms of the kingdom privately. It's not a private affair. So these two metaphors that Jesus uses, salt and light, make up two sides of the same coin. Salt and light. Two sides of the same coin, which is the Christian witness. He looks right at the disciples and he says, they are two things, salt and light. And in the same way, he looks at us right now this morning and he tells us, you are salt and light. So first, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. When I was in eighth grade, I went on a hiking trip with my class to the Sierra Nevada mountains in Southern California. We, we hiked in the woods for eight days. And at one point, we arrived at a lake. Uh, and this lake had no, no people around it. It wasn't a campground lake. It was like you had to hike up for days into the mountains to get to this lake. Okay. Maybe you've had this experience before where you look down and into water that's so crystal clear that you can see the bottom. Have you had that experience before? Where you look down into such clear... This lake was so crystal clear you could look down 30 feet and see the fish swimming on the bottom and the, and the tree trunks and logs that were just... Anybody here had that experience before? Isn't that amazing when that happens? It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to see. That's how I feel about verse 13. When we look at it in a glance... The interpretation seems obvious. So like when you look down into a lake like this, it seems like the bottom could be like two or three feet below. But really, it's like 30 feet down, right? And the same here. We look at this verse and in a glance, the interpretation seems obvious, but it keeps going much deeper than we could have possibly anticipated. That's just kind of the way with Jesus' teaching. We'll see this over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. It's understandable, verse 13, but it's, also, it's, it's almost impossible to plumb the depths of what Jesus tells us here. Take, for instance, this simple question about verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. What about this question? In what way are we like salt? Salt can do a lot of things, right? In the past, we've used it way more than we do now. For instance, scouring with salt was a common way to clean glass before the invention of Windex. Okay? But, but now we typically understand salt to do one of two things. Salt adds flavor 
and it preserves meat. Salt adds flavor and it preserves meat. These were the two main uses in Jesus' time as well. So those are the two understandings of salt that we're going to investigate. If we are the salt of the earth, in what way are we like salt? First and most obvious, salt flavors food. It adds some necessary zest to our bland dishes. Have you ever had a bite of food and something just tastes like, and it just tastes like flat? It's one of the worst experiences. It's this hot pop piping dish and you want to eat it so bad it looks so good and you bite into it and it's just like, eh. It's flat. What's the immediate answer to the problem? Add, add salt. Salt is so essential to eating how we eat that we keep a little container of it on the table in case the dish isn't up to our individual salt standards. Right? And for some of us, we have a bad habit of adding salt before we taste the food. Wives, don't look at your husbands too fast there. Can you imagine a world where we ran out of salt? That would be a nightmare. Where we couldn't add it to our dishes? Would there be anything worse than that, right? Food would be so much worse. I mean... We even add salt. I learned this through the pandemic as I got into baking. We add salt to our baked desserts. If you're a good cook, you add a little bit of salt to your baked desserts. And here's why. At its very best, salt enhances the flavor of whatever dish it is in. Okay, so it makes meat taste meatier, not salty. It makes chocolate chocolatier, not salty. In the end... The right amount of salt makes everything better. Okay, so if there's one, if that's one of the main functions of salt, what what would it mean for a Christian to be the salt of the earth in that sense? Does it mean that we make the world more worldly or society more evil? Right, of course not. In this metaphor, we, we make society palatable. We bring a measure of taste to a tasteless world. Let's think of it this way. Folly or foolishness is to blandness as wisdom is to saltiness. Christians are the salt of a bland world. We look around us and the world is full of foolishness. It doesn't take us very long to see that. But Christians, on the other hand, are supposed to walk in wisdom. Okay, so in the original language in Greek, Jesus uses an unexpected word here in verse 13. If we, we usually have to translate this, or we usually do translate this using three different words. But if salt has lost its taste, lost its taste is really a word that means in other places to become foolish. It's a play on words that Jesus is making because he's a good teacher and he's very clever. In English, we might capture that play on words if we say, but if salt has become tasteless, how shall its saltiness be restored, right? We use the word tasteless to both mean bland and foolish. We can can say something tasteless to a family member, share a tasteless joke. So the implication is this. Christians bring a measure of wisdom 
to an unwise world. We have the ability to live out these beatitudes, these norms of the kingdom, publicly. And in so doing, we demonstrate to the world what God requires of all of us. The flavor that we bring is wisdom. So if we understand salt as adding flavor, the first sense of what salt does, then the flavor we add to a bland world is wisdom. But the other major way we use salt and how in the ancient times, in Jesus' time, the major way salt was used was as a preservative, a preservation method. You might completely encase a hunk of meat in salt in order to preserve it for a very long time. Salt, in this instance, fights off rot. In fact, in Jesus' time, the flavoring of meat by salt was a byproduct of the preservation. In other words, the main use for salt in the ancient words was as a preservative, not as a flavor enhancer. Salt, first and foremost, in Jesus' understanding, stopped meat from going bad. And it only happened to make things taste better. That's what is the main sense of what it means to be the salt of the earth. We, the church, are a preservation force. A preservation force. As the salt of the earth, we stop the spread of rot. We stop the spread of corruption from abounding all over the place. The church of God has been sent into the world on mission. Its primary purpose is to make disciples for the kingdom. But another major purpose that God has for us in the world is for his common grace to extend. For the rot to stop spreading. We are a preserving force. We know what God requires for righteousness. And we know that a righteous life is the best possible life. Okay, And through time, the church has rubbed off on the world. In the Roman Empire, for instance, they used to discard their unwanted children and expose them to the elements until they perished. Common practice. If you didn't want a kid, throw it away. But Christians would know the common places that they would toss their kids out. Most often, they were little baby girls. And these Christians would go pick up these little babies and bring them into their homes and adopt them. It was only after Christianity was made legal that infanticide was made illegal. We can look at many modern examples of this preserving tendency from the emergence of modern sciences and medieval universities to scholasticism, the modern medicine method in Christian hospitals, to the first orphanages and the abolition of the slave trade. All of these are modern examples of Christians rubbing off on the world. God has used the church to make the world a better place. And he does it all the time. As the salt of the earth, we have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to bring justice, to bring reform, to many areas of our society that are just rotting away, that are full of corruption. We need godly men and women to be doing this work, to step up and to do this work in line with the scriptures. 
Jesus says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus makes a grave warning. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are salt, but if you lose that quality, it can't be restored. It begs a question, I think. It begs a question interpretatively. How can salt stop being salty? Right From a chemical perspective, it can't. Sodium chloride can't stop being salty. It is what it is. So I think there are two helpful answers to this question to help us understand what Jesus is saying. Both go together. The first is simply that it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness in the same way that it's impossible for true disciples of Jesus Christ to do anything less than be a witness for the gospel in the world. Jesus' disciples will be the salt of the earth. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, not please be the salt of the earth. Those who are truly demonstrating the norms of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, will not lose their saltiness. That's good news. So in this answer, we find a place right now to examine our hearts, don't we? Do I live up to the norms of the kingdom that Jesus laid out here in Matthew chapter 5? Am I truly the salt of the earth? Can I include myself in the preserving force that is the church? And do my actions bear this out? We should expect to be salty. We should have an impact on our community because of the grace of God. And it's, it's being on display in our lives. We should desire to be wise in our world. For our wisdom to rub off on the world and for justice to be done in our culture. So while salt, in a chemical sense, can't be anything but salty, we need to make sure that we're living up to that. Jesus, in one sense, says it's impossible for real disciples to be anything but the salt of the earth. But I think there's another way that salt can become tasteless. This is the second sense here. If I opened a salt shaker, and I poured out half of its contents, and I replaced that with flour, so half flour, half salt, that salt shaker would at best become half as useful, and at worst become really annoying. If I replaced three quarters of that salt shaker with flour, it would become utterly worthless. It would stop being what it should be. Salt can lose its saltiness by addition. Let me say that again. Salt can lose its saltiness by addition, by adulteration. In the same way, we can lose our usefulness for the kingdom if we become too much like the world. Today, we have access to carefully refined salt and all kinds of it, to season our our food and preserve our food, but 
in the time of Christ, salt was not that well refined. It was mixed with all kinds of impurities. And it's thought that a common place to retrieve salt where Jesus is living was the Dead Sea. They'd go get some salt, and that salt was mixed with all kinds of other minerals. And sometimes they'd pick up that salt from the Dead Sea and think it would be mostly salt because it was a white, powdery substance they could crush up, but it wasn't salty in the slightest. It was basically sand and dirt. And that stuff was only good for footpaths. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In the same way, if we let worldly things adulterate our lives and take our attention away from the gospel, away from the word of God, we at best are only good for footpaths. God help us if we prioritize the things of this world over Jesus Christ in this church. We need to pray that the Lord will keep us on track. We need to make sure that we're doing this both in our personal lives and in our corporate life here as the local body of Lake Morton Community Church. Or else, as Jesus says, we'll no longer be good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I know you don't want to hear when you get to heaven Jesus tell you, why did I have to throw you out? As we'll see later, the saltiness in this world, our saltiness, that is, our influence of preservation upon our society needs to be in balance with the other side of the coin, the light. But we can ruin our Christian witness by being consumed with the wrong things. Let's look at that second metaphor now. The light. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, light is not nearly as difficult a metaphor to understand for us, not because it isn't as deep, but because Jesus gives us two uses for light in his metaphor, right? So we can look at those uses. He says in verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus isn't simply saying that cities that are built on a high elevation are visible. That's obvious. He's saying that it's impossible to hide that city's light. It's impossible to hide that city's light specifically at night. Have you ever experienced in your life, maybe some of us have here, real tangible, almost tangible darkness? You're out in the wilderness or somewhere distant and remote and... Darkness is just everywhere. In, in rural Iowa, where Ashley and I moved from, darkness is never really out of reach. You can go get some of it every night. If you, if you hop out into a cornfield many miles removed from a city on a moonless night, you can barely see the hand in front of your face. 
We'd often be driving down the road at night, and miles away in front of us, we'd see this haze. We couldn't see a city, but we'd see a haze, this kind of dome of light. Many miles away, 20, 25, 30 miles In a world without electricity like Jesus' world, imagine the relief someone might feel if they would see that haze of city light in the night sky when they've been wandering in the wilderness a little bit too late in the day. In one sense, that's the church. That's the church. Right? And this side of the metaphor, this side is similar to salt. The light attenuates the darkness. It makes it more bearable. But there's more to it than that. This city, hopefully you noticed, is a city. And in this particular metaphor, there's a corporate element. In in the same way, our light, our church's light, should be obvious to the world. Should be. Our churches. Verses 10 through 12, if you'll remember, were all about persecution and how Christians should expect it from the world as we live righteous lives. Right? We stick out. We, we invite criticism. We expect persecution. We're like a city that can't be hidden. The church is a beacon in the darkness. The church is a lighthouse piercing the chaotic fog of a stormy sea. That's the church. We are a relief to those who are looking for light, and we are oppressive and offensive to those wishing to dwell in the darkness. It's a dramatic picture, a city set on a hill. It's a dramatic picture of the local church. This is who we are. We are the light of the world here in Lakeland. Do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe that? We are the light of the world here in Lakeland. We are the unhidden city on a hill in our immediate community. And we should prioritize that. We should make that part of our identity. We are Lake Morton Community Church, right? And in that sense, we are the local lighthouse that Jesus has placed in this location for these people. We draw people in by the light of Christ. Jesus is that light. But more on that in a bit. Jesus' second use of light comes in verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. It would be absurd to light a lamp only to cover it up while it's lit. It makes no sense, right? It's not what a lamp is made for. A lamp is supposed to light up a whole room. In fact, Jesus says the lamp gives light to the whole house. So I don't know about you, but I, I don't have any lamp that can light up my whole house. In fact, I depend upon the fact that my daughter can sleep in her dark room while we enjoy some light in the living room, right? So this is an interesting statement Jesus is making. But consider a first century home, usually one big living space portioned off, not multiple rooms. 
And in the age of electrical lighting, we have zero conception of true darkness. So let's return to that time maybe you've experienced real tangible darkness where you couldn't see your face in front of you. Imagine being in your house at night without any light from other homes, any street lamps or small LEDs on all of your electronics, any night lights in your bathroom or in your hallways, no big city haze to give off some of its light, even in a small way through your windows. Right, then imagine lighting a match and walking around your house with it. The difference between complete darkness, tangible, real darkness, and even a small amount of light from your little tiny match is a world of difference. You might not be able to see things as clearly as you could in the daytime, but the small amount of light that you now have is surprisingly powerful. You can make your way around. You don't have to trip over everything or be scared. And in the same way, the church is supposed to be a lamp that gives light to the whole house, which is the world. Will it make everything perfect? Brighten it up perfectly? No. But the Christian witness is like a desperate flame of light that makes the darkness shudder and retreat. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does it look like to let our light shine? Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the true light of the world. And he tells us, his ambassadors and disciples, that we also are the light of the world. He is the light in a formal sense, right? All light, spiritual enlightenment, comes from Jesus Christ. But we get to be light in the efficient sense. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. Any light that we have, we receive from him, and we point it back to him. Jesus says, let your light shine before men, so they may see your good works. The light of Christ is revealed to others in the form of our good works. Oh, that's interesting. Many understand this passage to only be talking about evangelism. Let your light shine. That's, that's the little children's song that we teach our kids. And let me be clear. It is definitely talking about evangelism, but not only about evangelism. These good works are the things that we do as Christians in our Christian community in response to the gospel. They are the fruit of the Spirit, the norms of the kingdom. Remember, to be a peacemaker means that you seek peace, right? You seek to make peace between God and other people and between yourself and others and between two groups of people. That's letting the light shine. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is letting the light shine, displaying the light of Christ in the world. So it would be absurd of us to receive the light of the gospel only to keep it to ourselves, right? Just as it would be absurd to light a lamp in a in a tangibly dark house only to cover it up. 
The point of the grace we've received isn't only for our benefit. We've received the great grace of God so we might shine forth and bring bring further glory to the Father. That's what Jesus says here. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If our good works lead other people who are outside of the kingdom to give glory to the Father, real glory, then those people are entering the kingdom first. The light that we have right now can be boiled down to this. This is the light. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation found in, the, in his death and resurrection. Light is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. When Jesus calls us light, he calls us to live out this salvation publicly before others, to shine forth the grace of God into the dark world by word and by deed. The light of the gospel that we shine forth sheds light upon the good works that we do in response to the gospel. We share the word of God to show the works of God. Let me say that again. We share the word of God to show the works of God. Now there's a reason why Jesus used two metaphors to talk about the Christian witness. Salt and light are both necessary. The metaphor of salt, as I've mentioned, speaks to the preserving quality of our witness. As witnesses for Christ, we help the world rot slower. We work toward justice and righteousness in the world in response to the gospel. But if salt was the only metaphor that Jesus used for the Christian witness, we might be tempted to think that our only obligation to the world would be to fight off the evil around us. In fact, without the balance of light, salt may start to lose its saltiness. Think about this with me. If our salt is primarily the preserving force of the church on the world, and if becoming tasteless and losing our preserving force on the world is due to addition and adulteration from the world, or becoming like the world, then... As we seek to be a preserving force, we risk becoming convinced that the only good that the gospel brings is in social social justice or the impact we can have on our communities and activism. That was the mistake of the social gospel movement. Jesus wants us to help the poor. He wants us to help the afflicted. He wants us to fight for justice, for the oppressed. But if that's all we think the gospel is, then paradoxically, we stop becoming the salt of the earth. We've added to our salt the impurity of political agendas and social activism, and we've lost the need for the cross. The metaphor of salt needs to be informed by the metaphor of light which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are called to be the salt of the earth, yes. But if we only do our best to be salt 
and never give attention to shining our light in the world by sharing the love and death and resurrection of Christ, then we're not really being salt at all. In a similar way, the light needs the salt. Both metaphors go together because we might be tempted to think that the church really shouldn't get involved at all in society or that we shouldn't really worry about justice in the world at all. The world, we might be tempted to say, is all darkness, let it be damned, and the only purpose of the church is to be the light of Christ, quote unquote. In the body of Christians who believe like this, we would see a belief, a theoretical belief, that evangelism is important, but we would never see evidence of it in practice. You see, the light can easily, very easily, be hidden under the basket of self-justification and self-righteousness and a conviction that you have it all right. That church who believes like that becomes the keeper of the light, hidden away, stored deep in a vault, and they fail to be a lighthouse, a city set on a hill. The light needs the metaphor of salt because often it is through the work of the church in the world that we're presented with opportunities to share the gospel. We may believe that the homeless people of Lakeland, for instance, need Jesus. We might actually believe that. But if we aren't willing and we're not there making relationships with them and meeting their needs, we won't actually be able to be the light. So this is a fine balance, right? It's a fine balance. We can't lose the importance of the gospel and salvation and right and sound doctrine and a focus on the word. We can't lose any of these things. We are the light of the world after all. We, can, we have the truth, the actual truth that the world needs, the message of hope in Jesus Christ. But the gospel demands that we bring it to real people in real places that we can only get to by being the salt of the earth. Are you with me? We need both. We need to have a strong conviction that the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe it unto faith. But as the salt of the earth, we also need to meet people's needs, to go to them individually, And not just to believe this stuff theoretically. Now I think that this differentiation between salt and light is helpful. And it's a way for us to analyze our hearts. Which we will in a second. But I want to be honest. And say that the differences between the two are not absolute. Jesus doesn't make them absolute. So we shouldn't either. Salt flavors a whole dish in the same way that the lamp lights up a whole room. Light beats back the darkness as the single flame in the darkness, just like salt preserves from rot. So remember, these are two sides of the same metaphorical coin. Nevertheless, we're presented with an opportunity in light of the Beatitudes, which which we've really dug into, we've spent much time contemplating, 
Are we individually and corporately here being the salt and light of the world? Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness again does not do so for their own sake. They seek righteousness in the world, both through the gospel and in a just society. Maybe it would be good to give you a little bit of homework. If you look at your heart first and think, I'm pretty good at letting my light shine. I share my faith. I'm comfortable evangelizing. So on and so forth. But I'd be uncomfortable participating in some of the ministry opportunities the church has and that are listed in our bulletin almost weekly. If that's you, then I'd encourage you to jump out of your comfort zone into one of these ministry opportunities. They'll be coming up constantly. We are inviting all of you to them. So if you think to yourself, hmm, I'm more of a thinker, not a doer. Start doing. Don't just be the light, be the salt. On the opposite end, and I think this is probably more common, if you're the type of person who's more comfortable hanging out with homeless people, picking up trash, or volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center, but the thought of evangelism scares you to death, in other words, the saltiness metaphor describes you more than the light, then here's your homework. Have one, one intentional conversation this month about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with someone you know doesn't believe it. One conversation with the intention of sharing the gospel with someone you know doesn't believe it. So, not just a a helpful conversation with a fellow Christian, not something you stumble into, something intentional. It can be a family member or a friend or a stranger, whatever. Be the light. We all have to get out of our comfort zones and do the things Jesus requires of us. Amen? So try it. Let your light shine. Evangelize. Share the gospel with someone. Or have a conversation that works in that direction. And please let me know how it goes. I want to know. Let the leadership here at the church know how it goes. After all, we want to be a local church that does these things in practice, right? We can have great teaching and great preaching and feed ourselves over and over and over. But if we're never doing what Jesus requires, we're actually dying. I mentioned the Dead Sea earlier. It's thought that the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea because it doesn't have an outlet. It becomes so salty that it can't support any life. Churches can be like that too. We can have an overemphasis. Well, we can have a good emphasis on right teaching and gospel and never actually be the salt and light of the world. If you'll recall, in Revelation chapter 3, that was the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing a letter to it. And he says, guys, you're doing a great job. You know the gospel, all of that. And they did. They had so many good teachers, from Paul to Timothy and so on. 
But then he says, you've lost your first love. And Jesus' point is they're not actually loving the world. They're, they're being the keepers of light, bearing it deep, making sure it's still lit, and being a lighthouse. I don't, I don't want this to be a place like that. Amen? So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you have things for us to do. Your word tells us that you do. Pray that we would desire, actually desire, to be witnesses for you in the world. To have a healthy Christian witness, both corporately, as a body, and individually. That we would be looking for opportunities to do things that we're not usually comfortable doing. Sharing the gospel with people. Going to meet people's needs. Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep that balance. We know that when we get out of balance in either direction, that we can lose it, that we can cover up the light, or we can stop being salty. Lord, help us to be the salt and light of the world that you require us to be. We know that that's only possible through your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do this in our hearts and as a group. Lord, we love you so much. We desire to serve you well. And we pray now that you would receive our worship. Even as some of us are convicted, even as some of us need to confess sin. Lord, in our imperfection, we know that you have made us righteous before the Father by your death and resurrection, that you have clothed us in your righteousness. And we depend upon that now. In Jesus' name, amen.